author Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We're joined by Eric Anderson, singer, songwriter, a recording artist since his 1965 debut album. He's recorded more than two dozen. His songs have been covered by the likes of Johnny Cash, Judy Collins, Linda Ronstadt, The Grateful Dead, and Bob Dylan. 2018 saw the release of the double CD set, The Essential Eric Anderson. Eric Anderson, how are you, sir? Well, I'm fine. It's been nice that you called. It's nice that you called. We had a little bit of a chat, ladies and gentlemen, before we... Before we roll the tape here, but um, we were talking about the essential, and I said that that Mojo Magazine gave it five out of five stars, the English music magazine. And I remember once I went into a recording, we were doing a song, called co-write, we were going to do a duet, it was with Lou Reed, and a song called You Can't Relive the Past. And I showed him, I pointed to him that there was this album called Ghosts Upon the Road, which was on the wall of the studio where we had recorded it. And I said, Lou, that album got really good reviews. Like in Rolling Stone, it got like four and a half stars or something. And Lou, just, he looked at it and he kind of rolled his eyes to the ceiling. He says, kiss of death. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like the better reviews you get, it's like people... If you get a good review, they think this is too complicated for them musically. You know, it's too esoteric. So if you get a three star or something like that, so it seems more accessible. Hmm. I guess that was his point. Do you agree? Well, I've been fortunate to get a lot of really great reviews, and I haven't sold a lot of records. So I probably would tend to agree. Hmm. Artistically, it was, you know, well received, but. In terms of getting it out to the general public, of course, a lot, there's a lot to do with the promotion and whether people, you know, you got to push it to, of course. And I, a lot of these works weren't really promoted properly. So that could inform, that could, that could be a part of the story too. Well, what is it like to get a retrospective collection like this? A look at your entire career as a recording artist. Well, when this thing was happening, I was going to put it in the, uh, in the hands of people who I thought knew more than me. You know, the listeners, like people up at Sony. And they came up with lists and stuff like that. And I, I was kind of avoided it. And then I realized, you know, I said, I better just check this out. And I, a lot of the material I haven't heard in years and years and years. Because I think what people don't know is when you are recording a record, you're so close to it. You hear the things over and over again. And when the recordings, the mixing, or the overdubs, or the mixing, or the thing, all the whole process of the songs, you're like enmeshed with all this music. And of course, the record comes out and time goes on. You never listen to it again. So I had it, it forced me to like revisit the material and go back and look at it again. And I was quite surprised by some of the stuff that I had completely hadn't heard in eight years and years. And so it took me a year. I decided I had to do this myself. So I put the, I put the sequencing together in three formats. I tried to make it go. I had, it was a little bit thematic, thematic. For example, like in, like the, the, the steel guitar player of Weldon Myrick from uh, Nashville. 
I had him, he's, he kind of threaded through a lot of the material and then it went into another player and then to another. Player. So I kind of threaded it through the musicians, but it, it was basically chronological. But I found a lot of things that I was really amazed of that they were much better than I remembered, you know? And, uh, it came, we, I did it in a, in three formats for digital, to, um, vinyl and for CDs, you know, for, uh, physical copies. And, um, the producer, uh, Nedra Neal, the lady who kind of really oversaw the whole thing, one of the overseers, they just thought that, um, they thought it was the best essential album they ever did. Because the album sound, it didn't sound like a bunch of hits just being, you know, mud against the wall, kind of, you know. It, it had a feeling of, uh, of like a real, like an album, you know. You put the needle in the groove and it feels like a, like a real album. It has that fresh feeling. And not just a collection of best hits or favorites or, you know. And a lot of the songs I don't think people have ever heard. Because they kind of came out in obscurity. Yeah. Like like you said yourself, you'd never really heard them till through Norbert Putnam. That's true. And so, and you, you've been doing this for 14 years, radio. And uh, that's what, what I gathered you told me. Yeah. So there you go. There you have it. Better, 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 late, better late than never. That is Maybe. true. <laughs> when you're listening to these earlier recordings and when you think about your beginnings how would you say are you are different from when you started as an artist well i think you might want to you come to new york and join the singer songwriter gang of like tom paxson fred neal phil oaks buffy st marie tim harden people like that of that ilk but yeah, I think you, you float into the city thinking, man, I'm, I'm going to change the world, you know. But of course, you soon find out that the world's going to ch- that it ends up changing you, and you find your place, you find your strengths, recognize your weaknesses, and you know you try to initiate as much change as you can, with not only within yourself but around you. You have to be a little naive to get into this to be a musician to be a songwriter at first. And why do you say that? Well, because you think you have the powers to events change. Remember, I came from the streets when there was a lot of protests, right, and stuff in the village. Right. The 60s. It was the, this was the beginning of the singer-songwriter movement. This group handful of writers. I'm hoping you can tell us about some of those artists. Would you say that there was someone who was the biggest source of knowledge for you or the biggest help to you? Well, physically, you know, getting in there, Tom Paxton, the songwriter, gave me an apartment. Phil Oaks took me around and introduced me to a lot of people. And everybody was really quite great. And, you know, I got to talk to Bob Dylan about his writing and got to talk to Buffy St. Marie, Peter Lafarge, one of the, you know, met Pete Seeger. And, you know, it was a, a group, they had a, they had these hoot nannies, these protest gatherings, you know, for, with all these idealists hoping to change the system. 
And of course, it was in the heat of the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, and the sexual revolution. All this stuff going on. And then, I mean, in country music, you know, you weren't allowed to write a song that had a simile or like had a, a, a metaphor. You couldn't say the sky was blue like a robin's egg or something. You can't use the word like or as. Or, I mean, I, I was told by country songwriters. So, I mean, it was, it was really wide, wide open for open season to use all the imagery and poetical devices you wanted in these songs. And, of course, it was an LP. You, you didn't have to make short little things like for radio, three-minute, two-minute songs. You could write a 12-minute song, and you could get it on an LP. So the possibility, the palette was much bigger and much greater, you know? Yeah. Listening to the different songs that you've written, it seems like there's lots of different themes that go through what you write. Would you say that there's one theme that is the most dominant in your work? Well, I think my songs have always been more interior documentaries than trying to depict, you know, write about the outside world. I mean, I never was a very good protest songwriter, topical songwriter, topical songwriter. And I just sort of went within my own stream, you know, I just put the boat in and see where it would go. So the themes, I never thought from, I never thought of myself, I never thought from thematically, though people always considered me like a romantic love songwriter and stuff like that. But, but a lot of things they thought were love songs were a little more complex. They had more edge than what people claimed they were. And today, what would you say the purpose of your art is? Well, the purpose of the artist that's, is what I do. I think my main love for, I got into this mainly from the writing angle, not so much, I, I possess musical talent, but I really loved writing. And I found the pen was like my own little paper airplane. It was a way to explore the room, explore the, explore the street, explore the world, you know? And so I always found writing as a form of exploration an expedition to get and sort of see what's going on on the banks of the river as you're traveling up in the canoe or something, the dugout. And the destination didn't matter so much as what is the process of the journey. You follow me? Yeah. And then, and then, and the, and the songs of what was, I, I'm reporting as what I saw along the way in one way or another. So I guess the object of, the writing um, is like, and I think of any art, if you look at any painting or you look at a poem, you look at a story, or everything came from nothing in a way. I mean, it's like making the invisible visible. Hmm. Things that didn't exist will then, through a work of art, exist. Well, you're talking about the writing there, but would you say that the writing is more gratifying for you than the other parts of music like recording performing that kind of thing mm. well i love to perform too and we've been had some wonderful shows i've been working with a great a great little hot band of a percussionist guitar and a violin 
and it's very kind of improvisational. The song is the basic, you know, the skeleton, and then people improvise off the songs, the players, including the percussionist who plays an African djembe. And I love performing. And maybe a better answer is that when you do perform these songs, it's kind of a, it's like a little diary. You know, you can kind of re- live, live life twice. By performing the songs, you can go back and revisit the situations. Interesting. Well, it seems like when you look at the records that you've made, that you do like collaborating. I mean, like the the do it. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I mean, this is probably a very abnormal interview <laughs> compared to what you're used to. I tried collaborating once with Tony Mitchell. We never could quite pull it off. We worked on one song I started and, and never quite finished it. But I did collaborate with Towns Van Zandt on four songs and Lou Reed once, Rick Danko from the band. I have done, have done some collaborating. It's always been wonderful to do because you never know what's going to happen. It's like watching a movie, you know, you never know the end till the end comes. Has there been an artist that you were the most excited to collaborate with? Well, it's a process, you know, it's like, you don't, I don't think of it in terms of excitement, way, but it's all, each person's different, you know. Like Towns was, was much more, much more literary. Well, Lou was, Lou, was very literary, Lou was very literary too. But, uh, Towns, you know, I think, I think Rick Danko was more, he, he was more like, you know, more of a music guy. He was, he was a writer. He, worked, he wrote a couple of things with Bob Dylan, but, uh, collaborating and stuff, but he was more of a, in the musical angle. But Lou and, uh, Towns were like more into the the words, for example. I wanted to talk about the song Thirsty Boots. Okay. What about that song do you think resonates with people so much? Well, I think it's kind of a, a song of hope, you know. People feel hopeful when they hear it. Just looking for the evening and the morning in your eyes. It's got this... It's it's got kind of supercharged with life and recognizing resistance, you know, to come across. And it's kind of a, a song of encouragement, I guess. I mean, I I hadn't been to Mississippi yet in 1964. A guy who had been there, I noticed his clothes were all. He just got back from Mississippi, and he was a he was a civil rights organizer, getting people out to vote. And his boots were all scuffed up and his pants were all ripped and, you know, and he, 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 he just got back and we we're sitting in the cuttlefish bar. And I think, you know, Felix was there and I don't know, maybe Bob was around. I don't know. Everybody, it was this one bar everybody went to next to the gaslight. And I just took one look at his boots and it kind of told me a whole story, you know. And then later I went down to Mississippi myself and then I got the shit scared out of me. Scary place. Yeah. And I was at 64, 65, you know, people were getting shot at. And the guy I went with, you know, Jack Newfield in the village voice, he did get shot at, you know, trying to put up posters to get people to vote in Macomb County. 
Macomb County, which is the bo- county that was the border of Mississippi and Louisiana. Well, and uh, he wrote a book of he wrote, Jack Newfield got Bobby Kennedy to run for president. He was one of the guys, and he wrote for the Village Voice, and he he was the conscience of New York, and uh, he you know the day before we got got to Mississippi, it was just me and my wife and Jack. We got down to Mississippi. And it was a full moon. You could almost see the red of the soil. You know, you got a town in Georgia too, that red earth. Right. And you see that red earth and the pines in the, in the, under the moonlight, you know. And uh, the day before, we were staying with this black guy named Steptoe. He was an organizer. And man, uh, the day before, one of his friends got killed, shot at the sawmill. I mean, that's that's what we walked into. I mean, you just, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah. Well, you have traveled a lot. Now, you're talking about one part there of the United States, Mississippi. But to give the listeners a little bit of of, uh, of context, I guess you could say, I'm not sure what you'd say, but you are in the Netherlands at the moment. Right. What brought you there? A woman. Interesting. <laughs> you like to travel? You know, it's funny when you ask me that. When journalists ask me what got me to the Netherlands, and I say a woman, there's never a follow-up question. <laughs> <laughs> and, I always, and I always listen to the long pauses. <laughs> journalists are saying, what am I going to, what, what can you, what, um, well, I think any, every musician goes on the road and tours travels. I mean, I mean, when I was younger, I said, well, it's, it's better to see the world this way than be in the army, in the military. What about living in the Netherlands suits you? Well, how can I explain? In one way, the world has become very small. And I mean, if you walk through the streets of Atlanta or Moscow or Beijing or Tokyo or Amsterdam, Paris or London, they're all wearing Nikes. Everybody's wearing the same stuff, reading the same books, hearing the same music, watching the same Netflix. It's like, it doesn't matter where you live anymore. And in other ways, you could say, well, the healthcare system is pretty good in Europe. If you were worried about that. People in Europe, are, I think, it's, it's a, the societies care more about their people, you know? Hmm. And, uh, it's not a dog-eat-dog social Darwin, like the social Darwinism of Walmart's big SUVs. And, you know, this is my property. Don't step on my over the line. I mean, it's just, it's a little bit less restrictive in a way. So America is the land of the free, but if you want to be free, you got to be able to afford it. Hmm. Here, people take care of each other much more. It's more, it's a better protected society and it's, and it's freer in some ways, but it has also, you know, it's more egalitarian, meaning, you know, the poor person isn't any, the rich person isn't any better than the poor person. Yeah. More democratic. Hmm. At the beginning of the interview, I was listing off people who have sang or recorded your songs. Has there been someone who it was the biggest honor for them to cover your work? 
I think Rick Nelson. Rick Nelson did a song of mine called Violets of Dawn. It was great. And Pete Seeger did a tune that was, it came out great. Sometimes artists mess with your lyrics, you know, like Gillian Welch, she changed a song around that, you know, that made up her own song <laughs> based on my song. How'd you feel about that? Not so, I didn't like it. Yeah. I don't like when people fuck with your lyrics. <laughs> Take liberties. Yeah. But she's a fine, fine artist and everything like that. But Rick, so he, Bob Dylan was very true to the lyrics. He didn't miss a syllable. Now, when he recorded Bob Dylan that song, when he heard when when he first recorded it, did you hear it then? No, I mean, I, I, it was like a rumor. Al Cooper told me that he did it. They'd done it. I had never heard. And then his manager called me. Years later, and it was, they released it on, uh, Singles Day, you know, that day they released singles, right. record stores, final. So then I got a call and then I, that's, and then they sent me the stuff. And Bob always asked me if I was singing that song in shows. And I, one time I told him, well, not so much as you gotta sing this song. <laughs> you know, you know, believing the importance of the power of the sets. You know what you the ingredients you got to have. Showbiz. Was it? Uh, I don't know what the right word would be. Was it kind of annoying or kind of bothersome that it took so long for you to get the chance to hear it? Well, I didn't even know for sure if it was true. You know, because you know they keep all this stuff under wraps unless it was done in a show or bootlegged or something. I I know he used to sing it. Before the band would play, I know she, one of the guitar players, one of his first guitar players, um, told me that before shows he would sing Blue River, or he'd sing Thirsty Boots, he'd warm up with these songs, a couple of my songs. But I mean, I never was at rehearsals with them, so, and I'd heard, the, heard things, but I never really heard it, and I didn't think about it that much. One of the songs on your essential collection is a cover of the Merle Haggard song, Mama Tried. I like Merle Haggard. Yeah, I liked him a lot. I love this album he did on Jim, about Jimmy Rogers. Same train, different times. Do you know it? Oh, yeah. It's so great. Merle Haggard singing, singing uh, Jimmy Rogers. It's a classic. It's really a classic, you know, album. I think it was a double, double album. I believe so. And it showed, and it showed Merle Haggard holding a lantern or something with his, with a railroad cap on, a conductor's cap, and with his foot up on a truss, you know, the, the cow catcher in the front of a train. <laughs> so how do you go about interpreting someone else's work? What's the process for you? Well, I did, I did two albums, um, on Appleseed Records of covers of songs of people from the village. One was called, the street was always there. And the other one was called Waves. Things that emanated. And, uh, I don't know, you kind of, and I did once a fellow song with Wycliffe Jean, you know him? Yeah. The Fugees. Yep. I mean, not personally. <laughs> we did a, we, we did a cover together, you know, of Philokes. And I, I, I found it very interesting to get crawl inside these songs. I, I, I mean, 
if they're great songs, you can do them. And I did Fred Neal and Tim Harden, and I did a Sebastian tune. I did, you know, writers from the village in the 60s. Yeah. And then I, I wrote a couple of originals for it. And uh, I think it's quite, it's not difficult if you feel the soul of the song to do it, if you have the voice to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. We were talking before we started taping the interview about how we connected, and it was the producer, Norbert Putnam. Right. I'm hoping you can tell us some of your memories of working with him. <laughs> well, it's funny because on Facebook, I, somebody pointed out that you had made a comment on his, I, I don't know, he, he popped up, that I'm going to be interviewing Eric Anderson. And his response was, yikes. And talk about you. His comment was, yikes. And I don't, we, you know, Norbert and I, it was a very passionate relationship. It was very um, fantastic, actually. And we, we recorded two albums. And he, you know, he's he's one of these genius types. I mean, he, he saw beyond the frets on a bass. And even though he, you know, and he had produced Jimmy, later he produced Jimmy Buffett. He got a hit with John Baez. And then he worked with Fogelberg, with me and Fogelberg, Ben Fogelberg. But he, he had a vision, you know. I'll explain something. When I first came to Nashville, this might sum it up in a nutshell. I mean, all the players there, they were, they were doing any sessions they could make money on, you know. The best players, they were, they were going from one session to the next, to the next, to the next. And they, they had a system where they could put the chords on a, mat, on a, a matchbook cover. And they went by the number system. They didn't make big charts about F to F minor to G to C, you know, like charts. Right. You know, of the chords. They just went by the numbers. So they could put, the, sang the song, they'd write down the numbers. The tonic was a one. The subdominant was a four. The dominant was a five. And then the two was a, the, the minor. The three was the minor. The seven was the minor. The six was the minor. And I don't know if you play an instrument, but you'd understand what I'm talking about. So they could put on a matchbook and play the song beautifully. Not like in New York where they did charts, reading chords. They just had the numbers, so that's all they needed. And they were walking, they were driving around cars like American, big, big American banana boat cars, wearing cardigan sweaters and short haircuts, going to barbecues, drinking beer with golf clubs in their trunks. When I went back to do Blue River, these same guys, I don't know, they'd heard the Beatles or something. These same guys, they were driving Porsches, BMWs, you know, European cars, sporting beards and drinking cognac and snorting Coke. <laughs> and though Norbert went on to play with Elvis, you know, he worked with Elvis. But basically their heads got turned around and they were not strictly involved with country music anymore. They wanted, they wanted to, kind of get liberated from the three chord songs, you know, and they got more into the political worlds. And, uh, and it was like a perfect storm when I met Norbert, you know, that whole thing came together because he was ready and I was ready. And so the, the kind of playing on the albums we did was nothing like anything. It was completely different. And they were Nashville guys. They're from the South. They're from Virginia, West Virginia. They were from, they were from Tennessee. They were from Memphis and they were from like Georgia, you know, yeah. Places like that. And, uh, Mississippi. And, uh, the whole thing clicked because their imaginations were liberated. 
I was watching this little clip from a documentary film. I believe it is yet to come out. Yeah. The Song Poet. That's correct. It is yeah. not coming out, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was It was just submitted to the Toronto Film Festival. In this little clip, somebody says that you are someone who didn't care about fame. Do you, oh, yeah. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I guess so, in a way. I mean, I didn't, uh, I didn't really pursue the politics of the star making machinery thing. What would you say is the most important to you then? Writing new things, trying to push the boundaries of songwriting, you know, trying to pierce the membrane, you know, membrane of first chorus, first chorus, you know, expand the possibilities and potential songs. That's the most important thing. Not your favorite song. I'm not asking for your favorite song. But if you had to pick one song from this collection, The Essential Eric Anderson, to represent you, would it be possible to pick that song? No. That's why it's a collection. Yeah. Meant to be experienced as a whole. I mean, some of the songs are, are are known. But some of the songs that I found for this thing, you know, when I was digging back, you were asking me about how this thing came about. I found some things that were really neglected, overlooked, and ignored. And I pulled them up, you know, and they became very strong. At the beginning of the album on the first side, things like I Will Wait... Foolish like the flowers that I do with Bruce Langhorn, Waves of Freedom, things like those, a few of those songs. There were, I think people were surprised when those came in the, you know, when the needle went in the, in the grooves. But one song that epitomizes, that's a tough one. Violets of Dawn, of course, has been kind of a, Evergreen, you know, trademark song, Thirsty Boots, of course, Close the Door Lightly, those songs. But I mean, the interesting thing about this is that it shows that there wasn't really one song. It, you know, it went out of the box a lot of the times, the, uh, you know, in the recordings that prove this. So it's, a, so it's an evolution. Yeah. What is the best thing about being Eric Anderson? <laughs> well, one thing is I'm still alive to talk about it. <laughs> Most of my friends are dead. Contemporaries. Yeah. I like my friend Joni Mitchell, who's like the godmother of my daughter, oldest daughter. She had a stroke, you know, a brain aneurysm. I mean, people get felled like trees, you know. Time just mows everything down. You know, this kind of reminds me of something that I was thinking not too long ago. I was looking at one of Bob Dylan's albums, and it's sad, but I was looking at all the musicians, and it occurred to me that all of them had passed away except for him. Well, he's got a strong drive, you know. He he probably would like to just drop that on stage, die doing what he really loves doing. How would you feel about that? 
not for him, but for you? I think I'd be very, well, if it happened, I'd probably be very surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard about people, you know, that this has happened to. Right, like Tiny Tim. That's right. I knew him in New York. And I knew of a Hardanger fiddle player in Norway. His dad died on stage. It's he, he was a, a violin player, and like uh, the tradition passed down. I I don't know. I think the idea, you know, as you get older, and you see. I mean, I'm 75. How old are you? Uh, I was born in 1981, so I'm. You're 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 a mere youth. This is true. <laughs> but after all these interviews you've done, it's probably added a few years on your life. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to all these people, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Because you absorb it. I mean, you absorb it. I mean, you end, up, you end up kind of living more lives than one. Yeah, I have to say it. it's hard to be judgmental when you talk to right. so many people. Right. That's true. I know it's very late where you are. Ladies and gentlemen, it's approaching midnight where Eric Anderson is. So I always like to leave my interviews very open-ended. I let the guests just take the microphone. They can go wherever they want. Hmm. I will give you the stage. Well, I think you've been very kind. I think I've been you've given it to me the whole through the whole interview, which has been very kind of you. Um, like concluding remarks. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's hard. To, well, I think the, I think it's important to to try to do what you really love doing, what you really want to do. Because you know, ninety percent of life is just like maintenance. A lot, you know. Maintenance means pay the bills, flush the toilet, brush your teeth. Wash your clothes, buy food in the market, get your car fixed, go to down, get it, pick it up. I mean, there's so much that you have to do just to maintain. And then there's always the 8% of like conflict where you run up against a brick wall or you're down a blind alley. And then maybe there's 2% per chance to dream and to do what you really creatively want to do. So, you know, even sleep is maintenance. Right. So you got all these things you got to do just to get by from the cradle to the grave. So I think if you can, you know, try, like my wife, my wife here in the Netherlands, she made an album called Fallen Angel. And it got some beautiful reviews, like in No Depression, and it was made for a German label. The other day, she just, she's a scientist. She, she made an album called Fallen Angel. And we gave a copy to Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan came out with an album called Fallen Angels about like three, four months later. <laughs> they say, you know, average artists imitate and great artists steal, or something like that. Picasso said that. Yeah. And, um, but she's a scientist. She just became a professor at six universities. And she woke up, she said, you know, man, I've got to the top of my field, but all I really want to do is write songs and sing and record my record, my my music. So for her, being a professor is like maintenance because that's what she knows and she's the best at it. 
I mean, she's somebody, she deals with um, education and things like that. And she works for the Ministry of Education in Holland. And she's writing master's degree programs. But all she wants to, and she sings harmony. She's in my band when we play, when she can do it. But the idea of actually doing what you want to do, to wake up and say, I reached the top of my field, but that's not, that's not something I want to really want to do. Think about that. So I think you got to make time for your, for the things you love. I mean, maybe if, even if it's a hobby, I don't know. Hmm. But something something dear to your heart, because time goes fast. Very true. As you were saying about all the players and Bob Dylan album. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mr. Anderson, thank you very, very much for sharing with You're us. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's It's been a pleasure. I'm sitting here under a party tent <laughs> in the Netherlands, and the birds are still singing in the night. There's going to be a full moon, a blood-red moon on Friday. I don't know when this will air, but by the time this airs, everyone who listens to you will have seen that moon. <laughs> nice. It's very nice of you to take the time to call me in Europe and interview me. And, and I just hope some people get to hear what I do, hear my music. I know they will. And it, they can check out ericanderson.com. There's no O in Anderson. It's two E's. <laughs> no, just, well, only one at the end. No, I, yeah. Ander A -N Anderson. Right, right. A-N-D-E-R-S-E-N. S, yeah. A lot of people say O, like Laurie Anderson. But, it's in but I hope, you know, it sounds like you got a great show. I hope to get to hear it sometime. I think Nick can give you my email, you know. Okay. If you want to write me and tell me the link. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll have a link so you can listen. And anybody can. Who are you going to have next week? <laughs> Who's next? Oh, on Friday, I'm taping one with uh, the drummer, Peter Erskine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you Maybe very much. You're very welcome. It's very nice. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I hope... I hope your listeners enjoy it. I know they will. Okay, man. Well, if you have any other questions, you've got my number. All right. <laughs> All righty. All right, sir. Sweet dreams. You too. Nice to talk to you. Good night. Good night. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>